Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome all of you to today's program, Treatment Update on Liver Cancer and Managing the Cost of Care. Today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have over 387 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, India, and Venezuela. So a bit of a global call as well, and we're delighted with your response to our program today. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Friends of Cancer Care. And we really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mitaj Borad. And Dr. Borad is a consultant, Division of Hematology Oncology, Department of Internal Medicine, consultant, Department of Molecular Medicine, Mayo Clinic, Associate Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. Um, and Dr. Borad is going to be addressing an overview of liver cancer, current standard of care, and new treatment approaches. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Borad. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thank you to the participants for joining today. Um, and great to see uh, global representation on this call uh, because, as you will see uh, in my description, liver cancer is truly a uh, global uh, concern and disease that needs to be addressed. So as Dr. Mesner mentioned, I will be covering uh, three uh, topics today. These will include an overview of liver cancer, the current standards of care, and some of the newer treatment approaches. Uh, we'll start with uh, an overview of liver cancer, which we refer to as hepatocellular cancer, uh, also abbreviated as HCC. Uh, it is the most common uh, primary liver cancer. By that, we mean that cancers that uh, arise within the liver itself uh, as opposed to starting somewhere else, like the colon or the breast, and spreading to the liver. Uh, in the United States, approximately 40 to 50,000 uh, new cases are diagnosed uh, every year. Uh, worldwide, the number is uh, almost 800,000. Uh, it is found at a much higher rate in men uh, compared to women. And this is on account of uh, two factors. One is hepatitis B infection uh, transmission from uh, mother to child uh, being uh, more prevalent in, in men than women. And also uh, risk factors that can um, lead to hepatocellular cancer, such as uh, excessive alcohol intake. Uh, other risk factors include uh, the hepatitis viruses, so hepatitis B and C infections, if they've persisted for a long time, what we would call chronic infections, can increase the risk of this cancer. Um, increasingly, uh, a cause and risk factor that we're seeing is what we call NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Uh, and then there's a smaller group of patients who have sort of less common or even rare conditions 
which lead to this, such as hemochromatosis, uh, Wilson's disease, which is related to copper metabolism, uh, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, uh, glycogen storage disease, etc. Um, this cancer uh, requires uh, better treatments. Dr. Raghav will be covering much of this uh, during his session. Uh, the reason it is somewhat challenging is due to late diagnosis and that uh, we're really dealing with two diseases, uh, the cancer itself as well as uh, the injury to the liver, which we would term cirrhosis. So we're not really dealing with the cancer alone. We're dealing with uh, difficulty of the liver functioning, uh, and as such, it is really a dual disease. That, that patients are struggling with when, when they encounter this cancer. I'll start with the diagnosis. Um, typically, this is made on scans, as we would put it, imaging. Uh, CAT scans or MRIs are commonly used. Uh, sometimes these tumors can be initially picked up on something as simple as an ultrasound. Uh, typically, with cancers, uh, physicians like to obtain a biopsy to confirm the diagnosis. However, with Hepatocellular cancer, this is not always done, and the reason for this is sometimes on imaging, you can already have a pretty good idea what it is, and for treatment approaches such as transplant or surgery, it is felt that uh, biopsy can cause seeding of the tumor, and as such, the procedure is avoided. Uh, next, I'll cover staging, and this is to see how much the cancer may have spread once the diagnosis is made. Uh, with hepatocellular cancer, unlike some other cancers, often it tends to stay localized to the liver. It can spread, but most cases uh, tend to witness localization to the liver, and as such, some of the treatment approaches that are considered for it sort of circle around this fact. Uh, usually what's done next when evaluating patients is assessing their liver function, something called the child Pew score, a simple denomination using A, B, and C, with A being the best liver function, C being the worst. Uh, this can help determine how far along things are with regards to the cancer as well as the state of the liver. And, of course, more aggressive treatments can be pursued if it is an A and more focuses on symptom control and quality of life it is, if it is um, a C. I'll cover some of the um, treatment approaches now, and these will center around if the cancer is diagnosed at an early stage, uh, an intermediate stage, or a later stage. So we'll start with the early stage. Uh, the early stage would be something where curative approaches would be considered, so things such as surgery, liver transplantation, and when these are considered, uh, this is done through a multidisciplinary team. Uh, these usually comprise surgeons, uh, hepatologists who assess uh, liver disease, uh, oncologists, radiation doctors, uh, radiologists, pathologists, um, and interventional radiologists. So really, uh, management of hepatocellular cancer is a multidisciplinary endeavor. 
Uh, as I mentioned before, in uh, early stage cancers, people try to go for curative approaches, including surgery and transplantation. Um, if this is not possible and one finds oneself in sort of the intermediate category um, where there's a few spots in the liver or it's not possible to remove it by surgery or transplant um, but is limited to the liver, then we pursue what are called liver-directed therapies. And what kind of things could this entail? So one can uh, try to cut off the blood supply to the tumor, what we call embolization. Um, you can also inject chemo when you're doing this. Uh, this is called chemoembolization, or also abbreviated as TACE, T-A-C-E. Um, attempts can be made to sort of burn the tumor by heating it up uh, through a method called radiofrequency ablation, or RFA. Um, you could freeze the tumor a technique called cryoablation. Uh, one can inject um, radiation that is attached to glass spheres, uh, a method called radiomolization or uh, popularly known as Y90, Y90. And finally, uh, radiation can be given from outside without injecting it, uh, what we term external beam radiation, where Patients uh, have mapping done, and then a sort of invisible beam is turned on uh, to treat the cancer on the inside. Uh, this radiation approach can entail standard approaches or techniques such as SBRT, SBRT, all capital letters, referring to very uh, targeted and specific um, uh, radiation treatment, or even very new treatments such as um, proton beam therapy, uh, where very little collateral damage uh, ensues when, when using radiation. Now I'll move on to uh, advanced disease. So we covered early and intermediate. Uh, advanced disease is where the cancer may have spread outside of the liver or is extensive in the liver to an extent where the liver-directed therapies cannot really be pursued safely or effectively either. So what kind of things are used in this setting? Uh, drugs that cut off the tumor's blood supply are typically used, and these can be treatments such as serafinib, um, also known as Nexavar, uh, in the initial setting. Uh, there's also a drug called Lenvatinib, L-E-N-V-A-T-I-N-I-B. Um, and it, when these treatments stop working. Uh, some other treatments are available that can also uh, affect the blood supply, and there's a treatment called Regorafenib, R-E-G-O-R-A-F-E-N-I-B, uh, and another one that will hopefully get FDA approved soon known as Cabozantinib. So these all work on affecting the blood supply of the tumor. Um, they have somewhat similar side effects in that they can cause some rash, diarrhea, uh, high blood pressure, some fatigue. And in some patients, they're quite well tolerated and cause no symptoms. But in the majority of patients, one or the other of these symptoms do occur and need to be managed. Uh, something that has been exciting in the last year or so that has 
become available is immunotherapy, and what I'm referring to is a drug known as nivolumab, N-I-V-O-L-U-M-A-B, also known as Opdivo. Uh, This is a drug that can be used if serafinib uh, has stopped working or is not tolerated, and about 20% of patients seem to have a response to treatment, and many of these responses can last a while, and this has been the very exciting finding when, the, when using these drugs. <clears throat> Some of these persisting even for several years, uh, whereas this was not possible in the past. Uh, if these treatments have been used and um, things have come to a juncture where one cannot pursue these anymore, then we are now delving into the realm of clinical trials or focusing on quality of life and trying to uh, optimize patient's uh, condition in, in, to the extent and uh, in the manner possible. So as such, I've given you an overview of hepatocellular cancer, uh, known as HCC, covered uh, diagnosis, staging, assessing the liver function, uh, the current standards of care, some of the newer treatment approaches that have come along, and I will now conclude, and uh, Dr. Raga from MD Anderson will be taking the baton from here. So I will stop there. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Bora. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful overview for everyone to kind of really set the stage for today's program. Thank you. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Indeed, questions are beginning to come in online, and you all can ask questions either online or on the telephone. And those instructions will be coming uh, later into the call, but nevertheless, Write down your questions so you have them when we are asking for questions. Our next speaker is Dr. Kanwal Raghav. Dr. Raghav is Assistant Professor, Department of Gastrointestinal or GI Medical Oncology, Division of Cancer Medicine, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Raghav is going to be addressing the role of clinical trials, controlling symptoms and pain, and communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life and financial concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Raghav. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, thank you, everyone, for inviting me to this workshop. Um, um, and thanks to Dr. Borard for giving that excellent comprehensive talk on management of liver cancers. And this kind of sets up the stage very well for you know the three topics that I'm, uh, I've been assigned to cover. These are actually three very important practical aspects of care whenever it comes to patients with liver cancer. Uh, The three topics that I'd be covering would be the role of clinical trials, controlling symptoms and pain, and then communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life and financial concerns. So first, let's talk about clinical trials. The basic concept of clinical trials um, is to help improve the current outcomes of the patients, um, you know, over and above what would be expected if you were just getting treated with standard of care therapies that Dr. Borard mentioned in his talk. Um, In short, standard of care is whatever we do when we are not doing a clinical trial. And the, the reason why these standards have come up is because at some point of time, we did a clinical trial which showed that doing these therapies and treatments helped improve patient uh, outcomes and survival. So we can say that we need a clinical trial if our standard of care is currently not good enough. 
clearly, if we have very, very great outcomes with our standard of care treatments, we would not need clinical trials. For liver cancer, unfortunately, that is not true, even though treatments have been promising, and as Dr. Borard mentioned, newer therapies have come up. In fact, there have been about two drugs which have gotten regulatory approval along with some other drugs that are going to get regulatory approval shortly. All this development has happened in the past year or so, thanks to the clinical trials that have, uh, that have brought these to upfront. I would say that our standard of care therapies are promising, uh, but uh, we still have a long way to go and a long scope of improvement. Think about this. As per the American Cancer Society, when it comes to primary liver cancer, there are about 40,000 cases that are diagnosed in the United States every year. Unfortunately, despite our best advances so far, about 30,000 people die from this cancer every year also, which means that many of our treatments are not able to cure our patients completely, which would be our ultimate goal. What we know from these numbers is our standard of care is helping only a small number of patients. And therefore, our survival is limited. And therefore, using clinical trials to improve those survivals, it would be the next best step. Clinical trials are a way of getting there. And therefore, I would urge all our patients with liver cancers and you know other cancers in general to inquire from their treating physicians about availability of clinical trials and strongly encourage participation in them if possible, not only to help themselves improve their quality um, of outcomes, but also to help future patients and our understanding regarding this disease. All the treatments that Dr. Borat spoke about, uh, which have gotten regulatory approval in the last years, have been because of these clinical trials. Only in a small number of patients that are carefully selected who have liver cancer and that and the liver cancer can be removed with either surgery or liver transplantation, which are clearly the best treatment options that we have for these cancers, and the cure rates are extremely high, we can think of just standard of care as being sufficient. But for all other treatments, whether it is radiation, chemoradiation, ablation, um, uh, or uh, any of the chemotherapy pills that we talked about, if clinical trials are available, uh, those should be preferred options, especially um, because, they, because they can help uh, try to increase the outcome, uh, improve the outcomes of patients. Um, almost all these therapies that we've talked about, apart from liver surgery and uh, transplantation, we should understand that these are not curative uh, therapies, and therefore clinical trials is a good option for almost all of these patients as a general rule. Um, some of the early attempts um, in newer clinical trials are actually proving to be very, very useful. There are lo lots of clinical trials for liver cancer, including immunotherapy studies, where we are trying to see if nivolumab or Obdivo, which Dr. Borad mentioned, is actually effective in newly diagnosed patients with liver cancer. Um, there are also trials where we are nowadays using targeted drugs 
to target genes that can cause cancers. So uh, just to give you an example, many times we can take the tissue uh, or a biopsy that have been taken from your cancer and run genetic tests on this. These genetic tests can sometimes tell us about genes that turn on cancers. Uh, we have targeted drugs that can successfully shut off those genes and therefore uh, decrease the growth of cancers and help improve uh, survival. So many of these clinical trials, which are called genomically matched trials, have, are, are ongoing. Um, and therefore, um, I encourage patients um, and providers in general to do these tests on a routine basis in patients with liver cancer. Bottom line is, whenever you, whenever a patient has been diagnosed with liver cancer, uh, or if you are a physician who's treating patients with liver cancer, think about clinical trials whenever recommending standard of care treatments and discuss alternatives, pros and cons of both these approaches. Secondly, let's talk about controlling symptoms and pain from these cancers. Now, symptom control and pain from these cancers uh, is managed in along the general principles of managing symptoms and pain from other cancers. Liver cancers can cause a variety of symptoms, pain, um, jaundice, nausea, vomiting, uh, weight loss, poor appetite, fatigue. These are some of the more common symptoms that can happen with patients who have liver cancer. Obviously, the best treatment for all these symptoms that are being caused by this cancer is to try to treat the cancer effectively. But treating the cancer effectively uh, is a longer process and sometimes patients do need supportive uh, medications to help treat these symptoms. So whenever you have these symptoms, try to recognize these symptoms and seek medical help as early as possible. Talk to your treating team um, because this is very critical for you to feel better maintain a good quality of life while you're getting these treatments, and also tolerate treatments better. There are medications which can help control pain, nausea, and vomiting very effectively. One of the major issues where patients get into trouble is the fear of taking these medications or the lack of communication with their healthcare teams. Um, therefore, uh, bring these symptoms even if they are minor, to the attention of your clinical team as soon as possible. Sometimes uh, patients can request referrals to supportive care or symptom management or pain management experts if they feel that their symptoms are not very well managed. Seeking uh, out these experts early in the course of your disease can help you feel much better and actually may help prolong your life. Um, a second issue with liver cancer is, as Dr. Borad mentioned, is many of these patients with liver cancer have liver cirrhosis or, or scarring of liver, which ultimately leads to malfunctioning of the liver or, or dysfunction of the liver. Now, that by itself is associated with many symptoms that are commonly seen in cirrhotic patients, even when they don't have cancer, such as fluid accumulation in the belly, swelling in the legs, jaundice, pain, and so on and so forth. I strongly recommend that patients who have liver cirrhosis should have continued close follow-up with not just their cancer-treating physician, but also a hepatologist, uh, i.e. a liver doctor, 
even after their diagnosis of liver cancer and especially while they're receiving treatments for these cancers. Managing symptoms of cirrhosis is almost as important as managing symptoms that come from the cancer. Last but not least, uh, let's talk a little bit about issues regarding communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life and financial concerns. Now, we've talked about how many of these treatments with liver cancer can help prolong your life. Uh, but to do that, you also need to be on these treatments for a longer duration of uh, time. And therefore, the concept of both quality of life while you're getting that treatment and also the financial burdens or hardships that come with that um, are very critical uh, from a patient perspective as well as from a physician perspective because uh, these financial issues can sometimes lead to interruption of treatment, which is not a very good, uh, uh, which is not a very good issue to have. Many studies have shown that uh, sometimes physician-reported side effects or the physician's perception of side effects differs significantly from patients' perception of side effects. They don't always coincide. Uh, physicians tend to underestimate side effects compared to what patients are feeling. And there are multiple reasons behind this, uh, including uh, the fact that, uh, you know, there are some patients do feel hesitant in, um, in addressing each and every symptomatology that might be, uh, that they might be having. Sometimes they feel that these side effects are, um, are inevitable, uh, and because they need the treatment, they just need to have the side effects, which is also not true. Uh, and therefore, there is a huge drive, uh, at least in uh, in our in the cancer community, towards including patient-reported outcomes regarding their quality of life on treatment to better clinical management in cancer patients. But the best way of doing that is to continue to have open discussions and frequent discussions with your treating team about any issues that you're having which affect the general quality of life. Long story short, as with most cases, treatment of liver cancer is a partnership between physicians and patients. The best advocate for patient is the patient himself or those that are in constant touch with him, such as family members and friends. Physicians are limited in their in their assessment of true impact of treatment on quality of life due to the irregularity with which they see the patients and and definitely in a very uh, in a very controlled environment of a clinic or a hospital rather than what actually happens at home so communicate freely and routinely about these treatments how they are affecting your treatment uh, how they are affecting your day-to-day -day life one of the common things that i tell my patients is uh, ever since you've started this treatment, tell me about things that you were otherwise doing which you don't do now and how that is affecting uh, you know, your, uh, your quality of life. Since many of these therapies are long-term um, and not short, uh, maintaining this decent quality of life is important. Also, this brings us to the important issue, this financial toxicity, which is a common uh, term that is being used in uh, cancer treatments nowadays. And uh, this is as important as any side effects that you could get from treatment which are physical. Newer therapies offer great promise, but they are also very expensive. And patients' access to these new cancer
cancer drugs is limited sometimes by the cost of the treatments that is involved. In liver cancer, it becomes even more important because many of the treatments in liver cancer are oral treatments or pills or capsules. Um, and patients have to bear a larger share of these costs because they are oral therapies compared with, say, colon cancer, where most of the treatments are IV. Because oral drugs are covered under prescription drug benefits, while all the IV drugs are, con are covered under medical benefits. Um, Unfortunately, uh, you know, the current studies show us that this concept of finances is, uh, and I'd be the first one to accept that I understand them, uh, you know, as, as poorly as most of my physician colleagues do, because uh, we concentrate a whole lot on physical toxicities and, and, and improving outcomes of patients and treating the patients with the medications um, and have, you know, small, a little understanding. However, there are resources which physicians can connect you with, such as social workers and case managements that can actually help patients navigate this, uh, this financial uh, burden. Despite these challenges, clinicians can serve as their patient advocates. To help these conversations, American Cancer Society has actually developed a list of questions that patients can bring up with their clinicians because many times physicians and patients are not comfortable talking about these things. But, you know, simple questions like, I'm worried about how how much my cancer treatment is going to cost me. Can we talk about it? Uh, or something like, will my health insurance pay for this treatment uh, how much will I have to pay myself? And, 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 you know, many times your physicians may not have the questions, uh, answers to these questions, but they can get you in touch with, uh, with people who can as long as they're aware uh, and, and cognizant of these needs that you, have, that you may have. Uh, or, you know, something, is there any way I can help to pay for this treatment? Uh, or if I can't afford this treatment, are there other, others that might cost less but will work as well? Um, so keep these in mind whenever you're discussing your treatment options with your physicians. So um, with that, I think I'll wind up my part of the discussion and, you know, uh, happy to take any questions later on. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Raghav. That was really wonderful and very comprehensive and, and wonderful, really, call out to um, really um, – people living with liver cancer and their families talking with their healthcare team honestly about what their experiences are like so that they can be connected to all the members of the team that could be helpful to them. So thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Marie Rodriguez. Ms. Rodriguez is an oncology social worker and she's director of patient assistance programs with Cancer Care. And she will be addressing coping with direct medical costs, related non-medical costs, and daily living expenses sources of financial assistance, and Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Rodriguez, uh, my esteemed colleague. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Hello, everyone, and thank you all for joining us today. As Dr. Messner mentioned, the three topics I will cover, I am going to start with coping on direct medical costs related to non-medical costs and living expenses. Cancer is a very expensive illness. For people without insurance, the direct medical cost can be a serious barrier to obtaining care. But even for those with insurance, most are unprepared for the out-of-pocket expense of their cancer treatment. Some of these costs are under the direct medical costs, which can include doctor's fees, 
hospital charges, medication costs that may or may not be covered even with insurance. Some people find that their insurance only provides limited coverage for prescription drugs. Then there are the related non-medical costs, which can include the cost of transportation to and from treatment, over-the-counter medications, home care, as well as medical devices or supplies. All of these expenses add up and are usually not covered by health insurance and must be paid out of pocket. Then there is the cost of living, daily living expenses, which include costs for food, child care, housing, utilities, as well as other expenses. If a person with cancer or a caregiver needs to stop working, these living expenses may become more difficult to pay. Getting organized can provide you with a greater sense of control. So how can you do that? You can start by managing the cost, by reviewing your insurance policy and contacting your insurance provider with any questions you may have. It is important to have or read a copy of your insurance policy. This will outline your benefits, coverage limits, and the appeals process. Your insurance company can also be a good resource to call if you have questions about what is or what is not covered. You can also ask your insurance provider to assign you a case manager. They can help you stay organized and navigate your policy. They may also be able to tell you if your insurance offers a payment plan or if there's special funding available. If you're not insured, please do not delay in applying for benefits, as it can take a long time for them to process. There are many federal and state programs that provide financial benefits to individuals and families, such as Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. A social worker can direct you to the governmental agencies that oversee these programs. In order to address the cost and manage it, it is very important to have an honest conversation with your healthcare team regarding your financial situation and how it may impact your ability to enter or stay in treatment. Remember that your healthcare team can help you provide you with the resources to, to different organizations or programs to assist you with this matter. There are many different sources of financial assistance available. I will be talking about some in general for direct and indirect assistance. So there is Cancer Care, which offers limited financial assistance for cancer-related costs, including transportation to and from treatment, child care, and home care. You can call our HOPE line at 1-800-813-4673, where you will speak to an oncology social worker who can assess your needs and provide additional resources. You can also call the American Cancer Society at 1-800-227-2345 or visit their website at www.cancer.org. By simply putting your zip code in, you can get a list of many different programs available in your local area from many different resources. Then there's the Patient Advocate Foundation. They provide education, legal counseling, and referrals for people with cancer who need assistance, managing insurance, financial, debt crisis, and job discrimination issues. They also provide copay assistance and financial aid for eligible patients. They can be reached at 1-800-532-5274 or via their website at www.patient.com. 
advocate.org. There's an organization which is a group of national organizations that provide financial help to patients through a searchable database called CFAC, Cancer Financial Assistance Coalition, and Cancer Care is one of the participating organizations. You can visit their website at www.cancerfac.org. Again, this is a searchable database of financial resources, um, and it's national. Now, um, copayment assistance is something that is always at the forefront of everyone's mind, and we have a couple of copay programs. So CancerCare has a copay foundation, and they help people afford insurance copayments for chemotherapy and targeted treatment drugs. You can reach them at 866-552-6729 or online at portal.cancercarecopay.org. There's another organization called REACH, which stands for Resources for Expert Assistance and Care Helpline, and they offer copayment assistance as well. Their telephone number is 800-639-2827. Last but not least is an organization by the name of Needy Meds. This is a dedicated um, helpline helping people locate assistance programs to help them afford their medications and other health care costs. Their helpline number is 1-800-503-6897 or you can visit them online at www.needymeds.org. Oftentimes, when someone um, wants to participate in a clinical trial or wants to go for a second opinion, housing is needed. So there's a healthcare hospitality network, and this is an association of more than 200 nonprofit organizations that provide lodging and support services to patients, families, and their loved ones who are receiving medical treatment away from home. They can be contacted at 1 800 542 9730. And finally, there's the travel assistance. There's an organization called Air Charity Network, which coordinates free air transportation for children and adults in need from various organizations around the United States. Their telephone number is 877 I now want to talk about cancer care and the free services that we have available for you. Cancer Care is a 501c3 nonprofit organization and provides free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include counseling in person at our New York office and via telephone nationally. We have support groups over the phone nationally, online, which covers national and international, and in person at our New York office. We have various community educational programs in our New York office, offer many publications, and financial and co-payment assistance. All cancer care services are provided by licensed oncology social workers, which can help you learn new and better ways to cope manage emotions such as anxiety or sadness, 
improve communications with your healthcare team, assist in how to talk to your family, find reliable information, find useful community resources, and manage financial challenges. All of our services are available free of charge to anyone affected by cancer, including people with cancer, caregivers, loved ones, and the bereaved. Remember, you can call our Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 and talk to any one of our social workers. You can also visit our website at www.cancercare.org to learn more about cancer care. And I want to turn over the program back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Billy. That was wonderful. Just an excellent presentation and really outstanding and so many resources. And I just want to let all of you know that when you, you're going to be getting an evaluation after this program online and all the resources mentioned throughout the program, and particularly those mentioned by Ms. Rodriguez, will be included as well. So you, um, And many of those resources, some of them are on the materials you've received already, but some of them are not, and so we'll be sure you get every resource that was mentioned. Um, so thank you. Well, now we have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, and if we don't get your question, toward the end of the call, I'll explain to all of you how to get your questions answered um, if we didn't get your questions. So, um, Crystal, if you could um, tell everyone what they need to do to, to, get their, to ask a question, I'd, I'd appreciate that. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star, then 1, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that is star 1 to ask a question. So we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, I'm going to direct this question to Dr. Borad um, to start with. Um, so is autoimmune hepatitis a risk factor for cancer? And then there's another part to this. If a lesion cannot be biopsied because of location and risk, scans show lesion, lesion to be non-malignant but growing, what options would you consider? So again, this um, I'll ask Dr. Borey to address your question in a general way, and then, of course, we go ask you to go back to your screening healthcare team. Um, Dr. Borey, would you like to just address this in a general way? Sure, I try to tackle that. Um, so autoimmune hepatitis, uh, where uh, the body uh, injures the liver uh, through an autoimmune process, uh, is also a known risk factor for developing uh, hepatocellular cancer or liver cancer. Um, so I hope that answers the first part. Uh, the second part may be a more um, you know, case-specific uh, question in that if it cannot be biopsied, uh, how can one really tell if it's cancer and if it doesn't appear to be malignant uh, but growing, uh, how could that be tackled? So I think this may be something to really address with uh, the physicians taking care of the case, but in general, certain scan or imaging features can give you a level of confidence that it is cancer or some other benign condition uh, like an adenoma, um, but if and adenomas can also grow just like cancer. It's just that they're not as aggressive and and, um, and worrisome uh, as a cancer. So, because of the specifics of this case, I would again ask to redirect that second part maybe with the individual mm -hmm. physicians. 
And, and actually, I'm going to just ask Dr. Rogoff if you could comment also about uh, being treated by um, liver. This is because liver cancer um, is its own specialty. If you could comment about people trying to access care from someone who really has the expertise that both you and Dr. Borat have in terms of treating liver cancer as a, as a specialty area of um, oncology. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I think... Um, there are two kinds of patients in in general who who get referred to us right people who have already known history of some sort of a liver problem like dr borad mentioned anything that causes liver cirrhosis and you know they are being followed up by liver doctors and they should definitely all these patients with cirrhosis should definitely be getting appropriate screening which involves imaging and some blood work uh, every 6 months and sometimes if they are found to have liver cancer, those are mostly early-stage cancers and can be treated very, very uh, effectively with either surgery or transplant. So um, so I think that's why almost all patients with cirrhosis should have a hepatologist who's following them up, um, up till the point that they have liver cancer. But even beyond that point, my emphasis was that many times whenever patients, uh, whenever we see patients here who get um you know, who develop liver cancer, um, uh, they tend to stop following up with their um, with their hepatologist. And I think um, we need to respect this issue of having liver cirrhosis and liver cancer as two different uh, issues, and uh, and to be dealt with entirely two different modalities, like the treatments for liver cirrhosis um, and and the symptoms that come from it are very very distinct and from the treatments that you give for liver cancer. However, they are interrelated because the better your symptoms are controlled with liver cirrhosis, the more effectively you can treat the liver cancer. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And um, the question for um, Ms. Rodriguez, um, and this is an important one. I think it's one that probably everyone is concerned about and which you addressed as well. Um, is there someone who can help guide me through the finances of cancer treatment? I'm so overwhelmed by my diagnosis right now, and I'm not sure what to do. So if you could address this again in a general way, um, just to help. Sure. Um, yes. Okay. So definitely, um, you can always call cancer care. That is one of the things that the oncology social workers here on the Hope Line can do. Um, so you can call cancer care. Most importantly, you can also connect to the hospital social worker or patient navigator um, in your local hospital, which they can also provide you with some good tips as to how you can navigate that. Um, and also connecting, like I said previously, to your insurance company if you're insured, the case management there so that you know what's covered, what isn't, and what types of financial programs are available for you to apply for. But definitely I encourage you to, or anyone that finds themselves in this situation, to call us at Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673. We can always provide assistance and guidance and link you to other local organizations in your area that you would be able to also get assistance from in this matter. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and, and another question, um, uh, this question um, is uh, for Dr. Raghav. Uh, should I get a second opinion before starting treatment? Um, general question. 
Yeah, it's a it's a it's a very general question. I, you know, and I can answer this in 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 a in a general statement. In general, I do not think that there is anything wrong in getting a second opinion. Um, I, I I can seldom you know see a patient who would be harmed by taking a second opinion. Um, however, uh, one has to remember that you know these these cancers do need a, a you know certain treatments and uh, time element in those treatments is critical so um some of the patients that i've you know i have seen who waited for some second opinion for a long period of time and um and you know their cancers uh, spread or or became larger than what they were initially uh, uh, it, that's the only you know downside of waiting for a second opinion but in general i do not think that uh, a second opinion is um is harmful in any ways. Uh, also, uh, I think uh, getting a second opinion uh, uh, would be more helpful if you get it from somebody like Dr. Borad uh, and other people who who deal specifically with hepatobiliary tumors or or liver cancers. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and I have another question. Um, this one for um, for Dr. Borad, um, how often should a person with cirrhosis get screened for liver cancer? Uh, currently, um, this is not a settled issue. Um, generally, the guidelines are to consider imaging. Uh, typically, ultrasound is what's recommended uh, to avoid um, significant radiation exposure uh, on a frequency of every six months or so, uh, or even annually, depending on the level of cirrhosis. Uh, some recent studies have also shown that uh, adding a blood test, uh, the alpha fetoprotein, uh, during these visits uh, can help identify a larger number of cases which might just be missed by uh, an ultrasound alone. So I hope that answers your question. Excellent. Thank you. And um, another question for um, Dr. Um, Raghav. Um, these are really wonderful questions. Great, great participants here. Um, I have recently traveled to the rainforest areas of Central Africa and had schistosomiasis. Should I get my liver checked frequently? Um, so I think um, schistosomiasis is mostly uh a very limiting disease in the sense that it gets if adequately treated it doesn't really have a long term uh, sequelae uh, it only depends on um, you know how long the patient anyone has suffered from that disease uh, that determines their risk of um, you know liver or liver or liver cancers uh, hepatocellular carcinoma is not frequently seen in these patients it's usually another type of uh, uh, biliary duct cancer that can be sometimes seen um, i don't think that there is any specific guidelines about long term follow up uh, of the liver um, except you know what would be recommended by infectious disease for management of schistosomiasis thank you um so here's a question. I know we've addressed this in a general way, but uh, it's been discussed, but since it's here, someone's asking this question, so perhaps others will Dr. Borad. Um, is cirrhosis of the liver the same thing as liver cancer? Uh, no. 
Um, cirrhosis uh, is basically uh, irreversible damage uh, of the liver uh, because of inflammation. And uh, you can think of uh, this being a condition that increases the risk of liver cancer. Uh, so some patients with cirrhosis will develop liver cancer, but uh, cirrhosis is not synonymous with it. And um, this question, um, thank you, and this question for Dr. Raghav. Um, I heard that oftentimes liver cancer has no symptoms until it is advanced stage. Should I have my liver checked often to prevent getting liver cancer? Um, so you know this has this is a this is a genetic problem with uh, with cancers in general. Um, you know about forty to sixty percent of patients with cancers may not have any symptoms uh, till later stages, and and many times these are diagnosed incidentally. However, unless you uh, you know liver cancer is is frequently seen in patients who have an underlying risk factor, which Dr. Borad. Uh, uh, you know, mentioned in his talk. Uh, I think if you have any of those risk factors, uh, then uh, you should definitely see a gastroenterologist and and get screening as would be recommended by uh, the American Society of Liver Diseases. Uh, but if you do not have any of those um, risk factors, no cirrhosis, no history of alcohol intake, um, um, no history of liver diseases such as hemochromatosis, um, then I do not think that there is any benefit of uh, of getting screening um, apart from you know routine physical examinations and and blood work that are recommended for everyone. And um, um, another question for um, Dr. Borad: um, My mother who has liver cancer has swelling in her legs. What can I do to help her? Again, this may be something uh, where the individual physicians who know the uh, clinical history may be able to uh, help in the most optimal manner, but uh, generally speaking, uh, <clears throat> swelling of the legs can occur because of uh, low albumin um, and a condition called uh, portal hypertension where the pressure in the liver is very high because of the cancer and the cirrhosis. and Typically, for symptoms, this is managed with water pills such as uh, furosemide, also known as Lasix, and another one called spironolactone, elevating the legs and uh, walking, these sorts of measures. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Ms. Rodriguez. Um, so I'd like to be with my husband during his doctor's visits. Um, um, I heard there's a kind of temporary family leave. How does it work? Um, is it paid? Um, if you could address this just in a general way, um, Ms. Rodriguez, just to help um, person understand um, that they do have certain rights? Or... Sure. Um, yes, there is um, family medical leave pay, but that's different from state to state, um, and that's something that you should contact your employer about. However, if um, you can contact us at Cancer Care, you can also contact um, the Patient Advocate Foundation and we can go into more detail based on your particular situation. Um, yes. Thank you, and that's such a great question because it does affect many of the caregivers on the call. So thank you, um, yes. for addressing that. And 
Um, and definitely, as, you, as Marie had said, contact Cancer Care. There are a lot of um, pro bono legal resources out there to help you understand that. And um, there are many benefits out there, but you do need to understand them so that, that you can access them in the best possible way. So excellent. Well, um, you know, we could go on all afternoon, I think, but we we actually do have a time frame here. So I actually, um, I do want to first of all thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. So they can't hear us applauding you all, but we are applauding. We're wonderful. And I want to thank all of our participants for really asking such really great questions online, really, and we have many more. So I did say that I would let you know how to get your questions addressed if you have more questions, and there are more. So for any additional medical questions that you may have, of course, your treating healthcare team, and I think we've said that throughout, is really a wonderful resource. Even for those of you who asked a question, please take the answers back to treating healthcare team um, and, you know, discuss it with them. Um, but um, for those of you I know who like to check other places for information, we always recommend the National Cancer Institute as a wonderful place as a resource for you. Um, they have a 1-800-422-6237 number. And again, you'll get that information at the end of the call as well um, and with the evaluation form. But they also have a website, www.cancer.gov. And what's nice about the website is they have a, a live chat feature where you can post your questions. So that's good for people both in the U.S. and internationally as well. And you can get your questions answered. So that's, that's a wonderful way to get just additional medical information and all the resources that are out there currently. Um, and I, and uh, Marie also mentioned the American Cancer Society, which is a wonderful resource as well, and does have a 24-hour call center as well, so that in the middle of the night or all different times of the day, and also, of course, their website is chock full of information as well. And for those of you who would like to um, access um, counseling services or the services of cancer care or financial assistance from cancer care, um, do contact us. Of course, we're here. Um, we're, it's all of your when you call Cancer Care or you visit our website and post a question uh, to one of our oncology social workers, we'll always be working with you. We also have over 120 online support groups. I just want to mention that. So for those of you who might like to be in an online support group, that's terrific for both people in the U.S. and internationally as well. Um, and um, so there are lots of resources that we have here that you can access as well. Most importantly, as we conclude our program today, I would not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with liver cancer or any type of cancer that you may be dealing with. Um, you know, you're now part of a, of a whole network of services that you can access, um, so many more than we can possibly mention in the scope of this program, but we are going to give you all the resources and that you can then um, access. And you can always start by calling us, of course, um, and, or, or your organization of choice um, to get help. Um, so um, although in the middle of the night or those times when you're having a particularly hard day, you do have your healthcare team, and you do have these, all these um, advocacy groups out there that are really there to help you and to really provide you and to walk you through some of those difficult moments. I, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day. <laughs>